we've been on this theme called Living Tents, um, which if you're visiting with us the morning, the quick overview is that this is um, a topic that we've been exploring, this building in the Old Testament that we read about. Um, everyone that has spoken this year, this summer, has done an amazing job bringing us some beautiful insights of the patterns of the tabernacle. Um, and we've been exploring this theme because um, we've been saying two sort of twofold reason. A, because we're about, as we've just talked about, to move into a new home and we want to learn principles and patterns about how to build a home for the Lord. But secondly, and more importantly, it's to understand what the true building of the Lord on the earth is and to understand some patterns that the tabernacle tabernacle speaks to because uh, this this uh, building that God instructed Moses to build for the children of Israel was always going to point to a greater reality and that was God's presence filling not a tent or a physical building but ones made in his image with his presence people who could be filled with the presence of God himself and move through creation with the presence of God and so the tabernacle was a shadow or a replica of what is to come. Uh, I think this is on the screen. It was an ancient symbol of a magnificent truth. And that magnificent truth is that the maker of the universe, the God of creation, wants to dwell amongst his people. He doesn't want to be distant. He doesn't want to stay up in heaven and shout down instructions. He wants to come and live and be one with those created in his image. And we've been playing with this little statement right throughout the last number of weeks that the pattern that the tabernacle speaks to is the person of Christ and the postures of the Christian life that enable us and help us to live in the presence of God. Um, and if we follow this pattern, the Bible seems to teach us, the, the glory will come. And uh, as we've moved through these different pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle, the altar, the laver, the table of showbread, the, the lampstand, the altar of incense, all of these pieces of furniture, we've been learning that they are there to train us in a life of worship, to train us in a life of how we approach God. Because this is what this is all about. And I want us to really try and get this as we start to conclude this series. That God is teaching the people of, of Israel in the tabernacle how human beings are to re-enter the place where the manifest presence of God resides. They're being trained to live in and dwell in the manifest presence of God. So I want to back up for a moment here so that we're clear on the point. Because sometimes um, Christians in the church and teachers can often make the means the end rather than getting the end goal right. And we can really do that with the tabernacle if we don't get, get that pro properly. In, in the Garden of Eden, which was this beautiful place, obviously, that God created for Adam and Eve, there was a a place in that called the tree of life. And the tree of life symbolized the source of God's holiness and life. The nature of God is symbolized in this tree of life. It's like the hot spot in the garden itself of the source of God's presence. And, um, and obviously when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to put a cherubim to stop them getting into the garden to access the tree of life because it would do them damage themselves. And so they were cut off from that. And so even what, what, why, why that's important is God obviously didn't want that, right? 
God wanted them to live in and dwell in around this tree of life. It was a tree of knowledge of good and evil they weren't supposed to eat of. But he, he wanted them, he wanted to train them in, God, in the Garden of Eden how to be his image bearers in this way. But their, their sin cut them off from that. And so the tabernacle, hundreds and thousands of years later, is actually t- training and teaching the people who are sinful people like you and me how to again access that presence. So we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant this morning that is behind a veil that only one person once a year was able to get into. But here's the point. God never wanted the veil. God never wanted a veil. He never wanted there to be that separation. And this is really, really important because sometimes I think we think it's the other way around. That God's all really, really holy and I can't get near all those sinners, so I'm going to cut myself off and separate myself. God God never wanted that. God wanted us to understand um, his goodness to us, and it was because of the disobedience of mankind in the Garden of Eden that God had to create some sense of distance for the benefit of his children who would do themselves damage and creation damage if they were to access the tree of life after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So sometimes, I said this a number of weeks ago, sometimes, who's ever heard this phrase, God can't dwell among sin? Who's ever heard that phrase before? Who's ever heard that preached very, 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 very passionately, right? It's only a half-truth, even even at a half-truth. Because, like, if God is, like, in you and around you every day, would you say that you sin from time to time? Would you say, right, so would, did Jesus come down into a world of sin? So, so it's only, at best, a half-truth because the real thing is not that God can't dwell among sin. The real thing that we have to realize is we can't dwell in our sin in the presence of an all-powerful, all-holy beautiful, majestic, awesome God without something happening to us, right? Because God in his beauty and in his power and in his awesomeness, anybody that comes into the presence of God throughout the biblical story ends up on their face when God reveals who he is because they think they're actually going to die. But not because they think, not because God wants to kill them, but because they're in the presence of something that is so other that it takes their breath away. And it takes their breath away like in such a wow kind of way that they think they're not going to have another breath. But what's so beautiful about God is every time he does that, his first response to their response when this happens is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And this is the God that we love and that we serve. And so, the biblical story in one way is a sad story of a creation and created beings who don't know anymore how to approach their maker. And yet, thank God, that sad story is subsumed and swallowed up in a beautiful good news story that even though that it may be the case, God will not give up on them because he still wants to reveal more of the manifest sense of his presence to them. And God will come after them. But because our sin has bent us out of shape so badly, he has to train us in order to access this place of his glorious, splendor, awesome, holy, beautiful presence. 
And, uh, and that's what the pieces of the furniture in the tabernacle do. The point is that God wants us to live in the Holy of Holies all the time. He wants us to know that and to experience that and to live into that. He doesn't want the separation. That's why he said, okay, you guys are living in tents. I'm going to live in the tent too. I'm going to come and live amongst you. I want to be in your midst. And so that's why the Ark of the Covenant is so important because it was the it was the peace in the Holy of Holies behind the veil that represented the, the manifest sense of God's presence. This is the place, as I said, that only one priest, the high priest, once a year would go into it. But God didn't want that long-term sealed off from his people. And to prove the point even further, and Trevor brought this out brilliantly when he shared earlier on in the summer, that to prove the point that the presence of God, the manifest presence of God is the point that when you read in Exodus chapter 25, the descriptions of all the pieces of furniture, what piece of furniture, even though we're preaching on it last, what piece of furniture do you think came first? The Ark of the Covenant. So even though we have preached it on the way into and towards the manifest presence of God, which the Ark of the Covenant symbolized, the first item that God actually describes is the Ark of the Covenant, because that's the point. The point is that God wants us to live there and to experience the beauty of His presence, to know His revealed, manifest presence. Now, maybe you're sitting there this morning going, oh, what are you talking about when you say manifest presence? What do you, what do you even mean by that? Um, Maybe you're asking the question, is the manifest presence of God different than the general awareness of God's presence? And um, I'm going to say, yes, it's distinct from that. Um, And I think the scriptures prove this. Um, His omnipresence is distinct. His all-pervading presence, which the psalmist would talk about, for example, in Psalm 24, isn't it, where it says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. God is in one sense, God is everywhere. But that is distinct from his manifest presence, the, the sense of God's presence that there's an immediacy, if I could use that word, an immediacy, immediacy to his presence in, in revealing himself in a particular moment where people become aware of that in a way that takes their breath away. And uh, I always go to A.W. Tozer for this particular distinction because I think he says it as well as anyone. And let me put up this quote. Just This is quite a long quote, but just stay with me because I think it, um, it explains this really well. If God is present, if God is present at every point in space, if we cannot go where he is not, cannot even conceive of a place where he is not, why then has not that presence become the one universally celebrated fact of the world? So if God is everywhere, why do we not always know that? Why does mankind not always know that? Why does everybody not? Well, God's here, right, in this moment. The patriarch Jacob, he says, in the, in the waste howling wilderness, gave the answer to that question. He saw a vision of God, which was the ladder that went between heaven and earth. And he cried out in wonder, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. Wow. God was here. Jacob had never been for one small division of a moment outside the circle of God's all-pervading presence. So he was never not in God's presence, but he didn't know it. That 
was his trouble, and that is our trouble. Men and women do not know that God is here. What a difference it would make if they knew. The presence and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. On our part, there must be surrender to the Spirit of God. For his work, it is to show us the Father and the Son. If we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. You see the distinction? The distinction is that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. That's one of the great characteristics of who God is. But it's when the people come to God, when his image bearers come consecrated in their hearts, wholly surrendered, wholly available. A bit like the experience that Ian just described himself having. When you become aware of a moment when God is near, God is here, and God is revealing to his people more of the goodness of his nature, more of the goodness of his creation, more of the goodness of his love, then God comes and meets with us. Why, why am I laboring this point this morning? Because only when we realize the end goal, the glorious, holy, awesome presence of God, do we understand the rest of the furniture. Because we need the rest of the furniture to train us in how we approach this holy, awesome, beautiful God that wants that veil rent in two so you and me can live in an encounter of his presence every day. We want this to be the goal of our church. The point is always presence. The point is always a presence because we realize, and when we realize this, then we get an understanding of why all these pieces of furniture are important, which I'm not going to go over again today. And so with all that in mind, we come to the Ark of the Covenant. I'm just going to read this passage and then try to make a few brief comments before we um, uh, take uh, communion together. This is what it says. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, uh, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold mounding around it. Cast four rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain on the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark in the tablets. Then put in the ark, sorry, the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give to you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherub are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put the ark of the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are above the ark of the covenants, I will meet with you and give you all the commandments for the Israelites. It probably looked something like this. All those details made it look like something like this, a wooden box overlaid in gold. Here's a number of things I'm going to try and just remark on. How it is fulfilled in Jesus and how it can apply to our lives. First and foremost, it was made of wood and it was made of gold. What do they speak of? They speak 
of Jesus who fulfilled all of this. The wood speaks of his humanity. The gold speaks of his divinity. Fully human, fully God. It was placed in the holy of holies, the most holy place. Imagine the God who wanted to fill the whole universe with his presence. The God who wanted us as creation to know his manifest presence had allowed that invisible sense of his holy presence to be contained in a, in a box in a, in a room that they reckon was 10 meters square behind his veil. Eventually, Jesus would come, the Bible says, from the bosom of the Father. Jesus came from the holiest of places to bring us to the holy of holies, to bring us right into the very presence of the Father. There was no form or image in the pagan temples that there were in those days. When you went into their most holy place, there would have been an idol. There was no idol in the Holy of Holies. And above the box, there was just two cherubim with a space in between. Because the children of Israel realized that Yahweh was, uh, Yahweh was a God, and his presence was a, split, a special, glorious, unseen part of who God is, who dwells in heaven and not on earth, that they recognized with no form or image, the otherness of who he was in those moments. But isn't it beautiful for us to realize that Jesus came in a form that we could identify with? That God came in the form of a human being, in the person of the Son of God, Jesus. This is the stunning nature of the incarnation, to show us who God is like, to help us understand the glory of God. The word became flesh, we've been referring to, or and tabernacled amongst us. A God that we can now, in Jesus, the disciples said that they could touch him and hear him and see him with their own eyes. Beautiful. There's cherubim there, one on either side of the atonement cover. The cherubims are always were the throne of God is or where heaven and earth are meeting. And they are their guardians of the presence of God. The cherubims are kind of hybrid angelic creatures. They're partly angelic and they're partly human. Why? Because God wants heaven and earth to meet. So even those creatures reflect in their very nature this overlap of God God wants, heaven and earth overlapping as one. We read of the cherubim later on, obviously, in Revelation. And then as the Bible goes on, it starts to refer to it starts to refer to the Ark of the Covenant as God's footstool, I think, on the next screen. Um, the Ark was referred to the footstool of God because it was almost like the children of Israel would imagine God sitting in heaven on his throne but wanting to connect with earth. So his feet, if you like, metaphorically, would have come down and rested on the Ark of the Covenant, therefore giving us an indication of this connection between heaven and earth that God has always wanted. Um, later on in Chronicles, we see evidence of this when David wants to build a temple, which is the more permanent tabernacle. And he says, David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I've had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. Look at Isaiah, this is God himself speaking. He says, heaven is my throne, earth is my 
footstool. This is the place, the Ark of the Covenant rep represented this place where heaven and earth were touching, were overlapping, were interconnecting, because this is what God has always wanted. What was inside then? Well, it appears from the verses we read, there was nothing inside initially other than the, the law. The two um, covenants that were written on stone were put inside the ark. But then as the children of Israel went around their wilderness journeys, it seems that other things were added into the ark. Look at what it says in Hebrews. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which the golden altar of incense and the gold and the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. So the Ten Commandments are inside this ark of the covenant, which represents the presence of God. The Ten Commandments, we all pretty much know what they are. The jar of manna was inside it. The jar of manna was God's provision. Manna was the, God's provision for the children of Israel, their food during their wilderness journeys. Aaron's staff was thrown down before Pharaoh's, and um, at different times, sorry, through the wilderness journey, uh, Aaron's staff represented fruitful budding and supernatural acts of power. And so here's the point, and this is a good point, right? <laughs> this is a really good point, right? Inside the Ark of the Covenant, or the law of the commandments, which is God's will, is the jar of manna, which is God's provision, and is Aaron's rod, which is God's power. What does that mean? That means... When you make the manifest presence of God the goal of your life, you get His will written in your heart. You get His provision for everything you need. And you get His power for supernatural acts. If you get His presence, you get His power. Wherever His presence is, there His power will come. Wherever His presence is, you can trust in His provision. And wherever His presence is, He's going to rewrite His way and His laws on your heart. And so God is encouraging us as a church. That's why following the cloud has always been and always will be our mantra as a church. If we make the presence of God our goal, our daily bread, our daily pursuit, the thing that seizes our hearts, the, the desire of our hearts to run after all of it, we'll get his presence, we'll get his power, we'll get his provision, and we'll get his ways written on our hearts. And so what we need to learn as a church as we move into a new space and we move into a new chapter is to not relent in any way in all our pursuit for the presence of God. And as we engage in witness and bear, and bear witness and connect with the presence of God, to expect His power. Not just to come into times of worship and go, wasn't that just a lovely little time of worship? To expect His power. Okay, God, you're here now. You're manifesting yourself. What do you want to reveal? What do you want to show us? What power do you want to demonstrate? What bodies do you want to heal? What minds do you want to heal? What love do you want to demonstrate in people's heart? What brokenness do you want, do you, do you want to restore? Those are the questions for us. A couple more things and then we'll have communion together. There was rings and poles like there has been and lots of the other pieces of furniture. <laughs> You know, it's quite a funny thing, actually, in the book of Kings, when they built the temple, it says that the poles stuck out the side. 
Kings 8, 1 Kings 8, 8. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place. I wonder why that was. Maybe it was because God wanted to keep reminding the people that the presence was portable. He wanted us to carry. Remember, the tabernacle was only a pattern. It was pointing to something else, a greater reality. That God wants us to move with his presence. Not to build our own monument. And that's what we have to be so careful about with this new building. If we sell our souls to building a monument instead of being committed to being a movement, we will have committed the sin of Babel. Yeah. In God's name too, which is even worse thing. Yeah. And, and so we need to be committed to the movement of God's people by the power of the Spirit to carry his presence wherever he calls us to. And then I'll finish with this. I have a bit more stuff, but I'll finish with this and we'll maybe just um, overlap a little bit of it next week. Finally, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim sat, there was a gold cover and it was called the atonement cover. And if you picked up when I read it there, what would have happened is once a year when the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies, he would have brought some of the blood from the sacrifice from the altar outside the holy place, which is what Trevor spoke about back at the early part of the summer. And he would have sprinkled some of the blood in this atonement cover, which was also known as the mercy seat. And he would have sprinkled this as a sign of people's sins. And in response to this act, God's manifest presence would come. And therefore, this atonement cover became known as the mercy seat. It says, on, uh, yeah, here above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And then later on in Romans, reflecting back on what Jesus did, we're told God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, to some translations say, or as a mercy seat through the shedding of his blood. Thousands of years later, Paul is writing to the church, picking up on the pattern of the tabernacle, which the Jews and the Israelites would have known well to help them understand that Jesus had fulfilled all of this in his own life. Calvary, the cross of Jesus, was our atonement covering. It was our day of atonement. This would have happened once a year back in the day, and now Jesus would have, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, in one day, Jesus achieved what the priests were having to do day after day and year after year. And when Jesus stepped into the world of sin, he did so to reveal the very goodness of who God is. The substance, the substance of the glory of God, the, the, the substance of the manifest presence of God looks like Jesus. And even more than that, it looks like Jesus on the cross. The, the glory of God looks like the God of the universe and the person of the Son of Jesus sacrificing his life as a sinless, spotless lamb, not like all the other lambs in the Old Testament, which 
were used in the sacrificial system. As a sinless, spotless lamb. This is what the glory of God looks like. This is the substance of who God is. And when we receive a witness to that in our own spirits, and we say yes to that, we start to reflect that in our own lives. The goodness and the glory of God fundamentally looks like a life of sacrifice and surrender. And that, I think, is what the Lord Jesus is calling us to. And so in Jesus' life and death, the whole tabernacle system was fulfilled. The tabernacle of Israel, and we kind of covered up sin. Jesus, as Ian described in his own personal experience this morning, Jesus took it away forever. The other priests stood up. Jesus sat down. Have you noticed in the tabernacle, Nobody, as they've taught, have ever mentioned a chair because there was no chairs in the tabernacle. The priest, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs religious duties. Jesus, the great high priest, he sat down. And when he sat down, he didn't need to get up again. One sacrifice for sins forever. Not just so that you could have your sins forgiven, which is ultimate and fundamental. But here's the point I really want us to get. And I really want us to kind of receive this this morning as an inspiration for us and a challenge to us as we move forward. Not just to take away your sins, past, present, and future forever. But so you can live in the manifest presence of God. So when you get up tomorrow morning... You're trying to drag yourself out of bed to spend a bit of time with Jesus, which I understand. I'm, I'm like you. Some days it feels like a bit of an effort. Just, just remember again, I, I get to access a holy, a holy of holies. I get, get to come into the presence of an awesome, holy, majestic, splendid, glorious, all-powerful, all-powerful God. That's always been God's ambition for your life. And because of Jesus, it's been made possible. And may that be the goal of our lives as a church family as we move forward. I'm going to ask the guys to pass the communion round. I'm sorry we're slightly over time here this morning. So just where you're sitting, would you... Just take, just take a moment. Just try not to rush this. I know we're slightly over time, but kids workers are aware and they're understanding. I just really feel like the Lord wants to mark some people this morning. <clears throat> Sometimes when God's speaking to you, particularly when he's speaking to you about his presence, he, he wants to mark you with his presence. And he... He wants you to respond to that in a way that you just say yes to that. You surrender to that to make that the goal and purpose and ambition of your life. And so just as the communion is passed around, let's remember the atonement that has been made for us through Jesus on the cross. 
And just as you receive that very personally this morning, I want you to um, maybe even just recommit your heart and your life to the pursuit of the presence of God and gratefulness to Jesus for his sacrifice for making this possible. On the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth my death until I come again.